This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's a big month for our next guest, best-selling author Calgary's own Douglas Century, out with not one but two major new releases. One of them is Second Project with actor and rapper Ice-T, a book called Split Decision, uh, and also a fascinating book looking at the Russian mob in North America. It's called The Last Boss of Brighton, Boris Biba Neyfeld and the Rise of the Russian Mob in America. Much more at DouglasCentury.com. Douglas, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I mean, you know, from an author's perspective, it's obviously quite something to have, not not just one, but two big releases happening at once. But obviously that meant kind of working on two projects almost parallel. First of all, talk a bit about that, that whole process. Well, it was uh, it was crazy. It was starting uh, just when COVID locked us all down. And I had already a contract to, with Harper Collins to finish to write this book, The Last Boss of Brighton. And then Ice-T had contacted me and I said, well, I could do it as long as there's like a buffer of about six months. But um, wow, it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting. It was th- that time <clears throat> when none of us could go to coffee shops or restaurants and it was just you're at home trying to write two books at yeah. one time. They were they were luckily not exactly due the same date. I had a six month buffer but yeah it's it's kind of uh they came out within the same two weeks and uh yeah it's pretty interesting but got it done yeah they, and they say press- I, i've seen this week i mean ice t was on with uh, Stephen colbert the other night on the late show was on the view this week so he's kind of been all over so that that's that book's obviously getting some crazy attention and obviously i mean he's he's such an icon and such a fascinating story right how he avoided uh, going down one path ended up becoming the you know the star that he is what, what an interesting story well, they're both, it's, it's ironic. Both of these books are cautionary tales. They're really the story of how a criminal mind gets shaped and how criminals start thinking about the world in a warped way. In the case of Ice and his former crime partner, Spike, uh, the cautionary tale ends with a message that crime does not pay, you know. But in the case of Boris, well, crime doesn't pay in the case of Boris Mayfield either, but he's unrepentant <laughs> 74 yeah. years old. He's not, he is not a reformed criminal, meaning he's not sorry for anything he did. So they have two kind of mess. One is darker, but yeah, they both, uh, it's ironic. They both ended up being true crime books that have a cautionary tale that uh, at, at the end, a life of crime, no matter how much money you make stealing and robbing and doing stuff, you don't end up in a happy place at the end of your life. It's really, yeah. it's really not possible to be a happy successful gangster uh in that world you usually end up in prison or dead or broke that's that's right and, and somehow boris is is i guess well he's he's so he's still alive so he's certainly not dead uh and uh he's free he's he's not behind bars either uh boris nafeld as uh, the subject of the book the last boss of brighton fascinating story about uh this criminal and his rise uh you know through the the russian mob and well first i guess in the soviet union then then in america but as you say it's kind of the history almost yep. in a way of of the Russian mob itself. How did you first connect with Boris or, or Biba as everyone knows him? Yeah. First of all, yeah, I'd like people to know this. It, it is not a biography of one man. It really is the story of how Russia, first the Soviet union in its decaying days, but now really Russia is a criminal empire. Mm -hmm. And uh, how I connected with Boris is interesting. Uh, 
Uh, it was in an agent's office, actually, because a uh, big Hollywood company was interested in making a, a limited series for a streamer like Netflix. I don't know what's going to happen with that. But uh, nowadays in Hollywood, they always need source material. So they said, would you write a book? And I said, sure, as long as he doesn't have any final say, it has to be an honest book. He doesn't get to read the book or uh, agree to it. Uh, I will write a book and then you guys can use it. And I, uh, I found him much more interesting and complex and humorous there's a lot of dark humor in the book i found it really uh for me i just i can't just knock out a book and say okay well this is going to be a tv series i really wanted to go deep do a deep dive and uh it really tells you the story of how in that decaying world of the soviet union crime became normalized stealing from the state profiteering from the black market uh and this is what led to the creation of what we have now the oligarch slash gangsters that run Russia. It's all part of the story of this book. Boris really is, um, it's almost like Zelig or, or uh, what's the, uh, Forrest Gump. He's had all these crucial moments in history, like the fall of communism and the, the rise of uh, the Russian mob in America, the heroin trafficking of the 80s. Um, so he, for me, it's, it's a, it was a great opportunity as an author to take one man, and through his biography, tell a lot of stories that are sort of larger than his story. And geopolitical, for example, like Vladimir Putin is mentioned. I didn't even plan to write, write a word about Putin. And I realized I have like 20 references to Vladimir Putin in my book. <laughs> and okay. because, you know, he, he's very much connected to these oligarch gangsters. And he had his rise um, in that world, which is uh, the collapse of communism created a, a vacuum. And uh, in stepped a very strange new form of capitalism, which is really a, a kleptocracy is the uh, the way that many people now describe the current Russian state. Yeah, and there's a longer history there. I mean, you draw a parallel with with Boris to, to somebody like Meyer Lansky, right? Who who was who was Jewish, who who escaped from you know from Russia, the Soviet Union, and was part of that that wave of immigrants coming to the United States, and and what became of him. But uh, as much as there are some parallels, there was a lot different, wasn't there, about you know what was going on in in the seventies and eighties? Well, what's really interesting is that every every ethnic group uh, in the United States and and you know, in cities like Montreal and, and, and Toronto as well, every ethnic group that came over, you had the Irish, the Italians, the Jews, there was always an element that said, well, I don't really want to work a laborer's job or whatever. And they clawed their way uh, to the top through criminal means. And Meyer Lansky, uh, Benjamin Siegel, Bugsy Siegel, yeah. um, a very another, another, another infamous man named uh, Lefty Bookalter, who got the death penalty in he ran all the ra rackets in the garment district in the 20s and 30s in New York City. Um, they're the black sheep usually of the families. But what was interesting about Boris, and that's really what we thought, this was almost like a throwback to once upon a time in America, right? That, or that era of the Soviet Jews. And these guys were really not Russians. A lot of them were born in Ukraine or in Boris's case, Belarus, but they spoke Russian. So for want of a better word, we call them Russian mob. They came over, but they were unlike any group before because, I mean, a lot of these guys had university educations. A couple of the, the major, major figures had economics degrees. Uh, Boris's immediate boss when he came over, Ivsea Agron, had studied at the University of Leningrad. So I wrote in the book, we will never see an ethnic crime wave like this again because these guys were 
educated in the Soviet Union. They came with incredible sophistication, very, very violent, and had a lot of them had been to the worst prisons imaginable, these gulag-type places. So yeah, they, they were much like Byerlansky, but in a very different way because they had the opportunities in the USSR to get university education and then came to America and became, and Canada to some degree, uh, gangsters. So gangsters with university education. So that's an interesting, <laughs> yeah. so the, in terms of, you know, they did this famous gasoline racket and guys like Michael Francesi, who's very popular. I mean, they were stealing billions in gasoline tax and the US government could not figure out for 10 years how they were doing it. It was a daisy chain scam. But what the Russians brought was really sophisticated ways of anytime they would see a chink in the armor in government or bureaucracy, they just exploited it to to the nth degree. And that came from their experiences in the USSR, because that's how you survived in the black marketeering. Yeah, seeing yeah. seeing. Wait. Sorry, Rob. No, I, I was going to say, I mean, it, it, we, we sort of think of the Soviet Union as this this police state, right? But by the 70s, uh, it had become something else where, sure, maybe at some level it is still like a, an authoritarian police state, but corruption was rampant. So it's as dangerous yes. as it was to be involved uh, in, in criminal activity. It, it turned out to be pretty lucrative to those who were, I guess, bold enough to, to pursue that. Well... Uh, there were estimates. See, the, the thing that, that happened was there were no longer by the 70s or 80s any really true believers in communism. Everybody knew the system was failing. So, yes, the black market uh, or what they would say in Russian, na levo, on the left, making money on the left means like illegally, was was uh, maybe 30 percent of the economy. And the tribute flowed all the way up to the apparatchiks or it's called the nomenclatura, the uh, Communist Party officials profited the most. So it was a kind of criminal, it was a mafia type state. Uh, David Remnick, the great writer for The New Yorker who wrote about uh, Lenin and uh, wrote great books about it, he actually said it was as if the entire country was ruled by one mafia family called the, the Communist Party of the USSR. <laughs> I mean, it really was a decaying state. And, but the problem was, you had to pay a lot of bribes, and that's what Boris Boris was stealing so much money uh, with rackets in Siberia that he was running. But if you got caught stealing from the state in an excessive amount, that was a crime on the books called stealing from the state, uh, you went before the firing squad. No questions asked. Boom, boom, boom. But the way you survived was to keep paying off the cops. And uh, But the guys who profited the very most were, were the guys at the top of the food chain, which were the communist officials who were looking the other way. So that's that's what really was going on in the communist system. It was failing. And the black market was a was an essential criminal empire uh, at, at the top of which were the officials. So 1980, he arrives in Brighton Beach. We can talk about, you know, why, why that location was significant. But he's, he's still kind of a nobody then there at that time. And it's kind of within what, four or five years. You know, he's he's a pretty important and powerful figure. Oh, I think even faster. Yeah, yeah he came over Br Brighton Beach at that time. Just so people visualize New York, it's on the south side of Brooklyn. Uh, they called it Little Odessa because the original, you know, there, it was an old Jewish neighborhood. If you remember uh, uh, Brighton Beach memoirs by uh, right. um, uh, Neil Simon. And my mother was born in Coney Island, which kind of is right right next to Brighton Beach. So when the, the, the first wave came over, I mean, there, there ended up being 40,000 uh, or more now. Russian-speaking immigrants, and you can go to Brighton Beach even to this day and not not know a word of English and just spend your whole day shopping in Russian, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, when Boris arrived, he tried a couple times to drive a taxi and do stuff, but without knowing English and without really 
having any skills in America, it's it was a grind. And he's just too impatient. Like criminal criminal minded people like him are very, very have, uh, they lack the gene for uh, delayed gratification. <laughs> so uh, within weeks of arriving in Brighton Beach, he got himself a 38 caliber and then they just started to do, you know, jobs, yeah. uh, robberies. Uh, at that time, there were a lot of criminal activities and he, he, he came to the attention within a year of the established boss, you'd say grown, who said, man, you're a guy that can do work, come to work for me. So um, yeah, there was about 500 extremely hardened criminals, the FBI and the NYPD, like 500 professional criminals, they call them. But in a community of 40,000, that's not a high population, but they really, uh, yeah, they ran a, a, a very interesting racket and they partnered often with the Italian-Americans, the, the, the crime, five crime families, but they were never afraid of them. It was really interesting to talk to Boris about that. They liked working with the Italians. They didn't really trust the Italians, and uh, but they had no fear of them because they really were... Um, hungrier <laughs> fresh yeah. off the boat as you would say right right well and it's interesting so there's a lot of parallels obviously you know between the russian mob and, and the italian mafia but there, there's also a lot of differences too yeah what boris explained to me is the fbi and the media would say oh this uh if say is the godfather well they never used words like this and yeah. the italians I, I, mean, I don't have to waste time to explaining this the italian mafia was structured in a military type way with a with a boss and then couple regimes and then soldiers so it was very very hierarchical and boris would laugh and tell me oh the italians with their ranks you meaning like you um people have to visualize there is there is a mafia or there is a russian organized crime structure but it's very it's like amoebas they um it's very amorphous. So guys work with a leader. They work as crews, but it's almost job to job. So you can kind of partner up with another crew. You have to split the proceeds. There are kind of rules, but it isn't uh, a military type structure like the Italians. They don't have. Um, now, in Russia, there were these Vorezakoni, which are the thieves in law who are, you know, people have seen these tatted up guys with uh, stars on their shoulders. There are criminal authorities. So if things go to disputes, they kind of do have tribunals and they'll have a rulings over things. But yes, it's very different from the Italians. And Boris would laugh to me and say, I can't, I can't understand these Italians and they have these ranks in the military and stuff. We're just, you know, we're just gangsters. And, and you know, if we do a job, we all eat together, meaning everybody splits the proceeds. Um, so it's a, a very different uh, structure. And but yet it is similar in other ways in terms of having codes of behavior and certain rules. They're different rules. They have different rules than the Italians, but they do have certain rules that you can't do certain things. So there, there are uh, parallels and, and also great differences, like you just said. Right. So this represented kind of an era of, of the Russian mafia. And, and as you say, in some ways, maybe the Russian mafia today is represented by, you know, the, the, the powers in Russia, Putin himself, maybe in a lot of ways. But it, it still exists. There, there is still Russian organized crime. But what's different from you know, Boris's era and, and what exists today? Well, Boris's era, you know, these guys came over, like I said, the Soviet Union let out in 1970. Uh, they started to leave out. Leave, leave out uh, or let out, sorry, Jewish, um, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, Russian speaking Jews who wanted to sort of get out of the Soviet Union. They, they came over. That wave is done. I mean, you know, Russia, Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And what's different now is that the organized crime is really part of the government. I mean, the organized crime, the oligarchs, many of the oligarchs are on watch lists by the U S and, uh, um, the EU, meaning that they are have ties to money laundering and 
So the criminal uh, element has partnered so much with the government in, in, in current Russia that, like, I would argue Putin himself behaves like a mafia boss. I mean, other people have said this, not sure. just me, but uh, so it's changed in that the entire country of Russia is now much more openly like uh, a mob, <laughs> mm-hmm. for want of a better word. It really is. And I, like I said, I wrote a piece that's coming out uh, this weekend in which I, I say, you know, Vladimir Putin is the biggest mob boss in history in terms of, of his behavior. He uses slang that Russian Russians are shocked when they hear Putin speak publicly. He will use gangster slang that no Soviet or Russian leader ever spoke this way. They always spoke in official language. So but yeah, Putin puts on the airs sometimes of um, a gangster. In a, in, it's kind of a pose because it makes him sound like a tough guy. But what's changed is that Russia itself adopted a lot of the the gangster ethos that was um, a subculture. It's now really part of the norm of the government of Russia, which is pretty shocking. Well, and as for Boris himself, I mean, part of his, you know, how does he feel about, you know, sharing his own story, warts and all? But I'm curious, too. I mean, what does he think of of Putin? What does he think of what his former country's become? Oh, uh, guys like uh, Boris are re- they're big fans of Putin. It's, yeah. it's shocking to me, actually, because, you know, they're very Putin. Putin's been, um, for one thing, for Jews, uh, many of the oligarchs uh, who are surrounding Putin are Jewish. He's not anti-Semitic, and he's had a lot. He had a lot of Jewish friends growing up, and so uh, Boris is. Uh, and also, people have to understand. I mean, it's an atrocity what's happened in Ukraine. But many Russians have this view that Putin has. Ukraine literally means a borderlands in Russian, and they grew up with this sense that it really isn't a different country, and it belongs to them. And uh, and I, I hate to say it, but they just have this propaganda view of that, well, we're taking back what was rightfully ours. Why you guys, why do you guys care? Um, and they think Putin is tough and strong. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I don't think it's brainwashing, but they're not, um, like Boris asked me, why was the, U- he said, why is NATO provoking this, this, this situation really? in Ukraine? What, let us have, let us have back that, that, that's not even our country. That's, you know, that's, that's, that's part of uh, our, ours. Why do you care? And I said, that's not the case. And, <laughs> and I said, and he said, it's a very anti-Semitic country, Doug. And I said, what? The, the president's Jewish. And he said, dog oh, Jewish. This guy's a clown, you know, because Zelensky was a comedian. And <laughs> so, yeah, they, they follow the, well, this is what they get from the Russian state media. So and they a lot of the older guys, they buy it hook, line and sinker. They think uh, Putin's doing the right thing and they're um, they're wondering why we care. So, you know, I don't even argue with him about politics because it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of pointless. It's a lo- yes. <laughs> kind of a pointless thing. And it's a losing cause. Also, they love Trump. I mean, they were really big fans of Trump. So, um, yeah, it's 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 a, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance when you you talk to a guy like Boris because a lot of the things he says are contradictory. But yeah. uh, well, that's human nature. Yeah. But yeah, they're they're uh, they're happy in modern Russia because crime is so endemic that it sort of feels like well, like everybody has to pay protection. Uh, there's a thing called Krisha, a roof. Everybody has to pay protection for their businesses. It's open and everybody knows it. And um, so I mean, if you grew up surviving under the communist system, it's sort of, well, this is uh, this is how it was, but now it's a little bit more open, you know? And um, I don't know. I mean, it's a strange, yeah, like I say, a lot of cognitive dissonance there. And what does he think of the book? 
Well, he hasn't read it yet because he can't read English. Oh, yeah. That's true. <laughs> but it's, uh, I mean, he's really happy that I wrote a book. Um, you know, it was really funny because we had a, we were doing a, a dinner at his brother's house. His brother never broke the law in his life. And he's a retired guy. We were at his house in Staten Island like a few months ago. And Boris had the vodka, you know, the mm -hmm. decanter of vodka. And he, he says, I raised my first talk to Doug. Uh, Doug, you are a better writer for me than Dostoevsky. And I said, Boris, <laughs> come on, man. You haven't read a word I wrote because right. you can't read English. So come on, you're just blowing smoke. Like, how do you know what? <laughs> I'm not a better writer than Dostoevsky. That's one of the greatest of all. He just smiled. Like, he's a, he's a very interesting guy because he's very dangerous, but he's very charming. His flattery and his use of... Uh, there's, I've met so many gangsters in the work I've done. Some are really just scary. Mm -hmm. You get around them. Boris is very unique because he's scary and he's also extremely charming. So uh, he thinks I'm a great writer. He always tells people I'm a great writer. But um, what it is, is that he's 74. He's been shot and, and there were bombings. Like he's survived five ass assassination attempts. The, on, uh, on any statistical law of averages, this guy should not be alive to this age. So he wanted to get his story out there because it's almost his legacy. Like this was what the life I lived. Yeah. And now he's, got a, now he's got it documented. So on that level, I think all criminals I've learned, uh, they have certain, like organized criminals, they have a... They have a lot of intelligence, but they have a certain personality type and their fatal flaws are things like narcissism, impatience, hubris. Um, so in terms of his narcissism and his vanity, of course, he loves having a book written about him. Even if, it, even if it's unflattering, a lot of it is unflattering. Sure. Right? Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, he, but he's a, he's a very self-effacing guy in that he'll say to me, Doug, I'm not a good guy. I said, I, know, I mean, I realize that. And he said, but he'll say, no, I'm a, I was a horrible father. I was a horrible husband. I've not lived a good life. So uh, I was able to write everything bad that he did, except for a lot of the murders he's he's accused of, though he was never really charged. I really couldn't get him to admit that stuff, obviously. But yeah. um, he was really open with me about being a bad human being. And I thought, well, that makes it fairly easy as a crime writer if a person is willing to say, I'm not good. I'm a really bad man. Uh, you don't have to go through the layers of self justification that a lot of people have <laughs> no kidding. um yeah very interesting guy like at the end of the day he's a fascinating person that's the you know i i set out to write this book and i said look i can't make him sympathetic i think that's impossible maybe i can make him comprehensible and a lot of people who've read the book said god i really understood this guy and that that was my own only real goal yeah because when you got a guy that's convicted of four four charges of racketeering all sorts of other crimes Definitely, definitely has done some very bad things. You're you're not going to be able to make the reader sympathize with that behavior, but maybe, just maybe, you'll say, I kind of understand why he did what he did. I mean, he was abandoned as a child. He was orphaned. He clawed his way up in the Soviet Union. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything admirable about him, but there is stuff that is certainly interesting. That's yeah. the goal with any writer when you set out to write a book. Choose an interesting character. You know, well, it can be my daughter that. who's... <laughs> my daughter who's 19 she's here with me in calgary and i was sitting there while, while writing the book and i said god how do i make him sympathetic she said no he's an anti-hero and i said i'm glad you're studying literature in school like you know <laughs> raskolnikov and anti-hero tony soprano an anti-hero i mean a very very bad guy kills his own nephew does a, but in some weird way we root for him right we we kind of want him to get through certain situations. So that's an interesting, that's a whole other interesting thing. But a lot of times as a writer, you have an anti-hero and you you accept that he's not going to be a noble character or anything, but maybe the reader will just want to see what he's going to do next, right? So I hope I achieved that. 
Yeah. I would say so. Well, the book is called The Last Boss of Brighton. We also mentioned Split Decision uh, with Ice-T and Spike. Both books uh, out this month. Much more is mentioned. DouglasCentury.com. Uh, Doug, great to have you with us. Congrats on, on both projects here. And uh, again, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. I appreciate it. And, and you know, everybody can check these books out. They're both in, in really fantastic audiobooks. I know a lot of people like to... Uh, I'm on the audiobook with Ice-T and Spike doing a special hour-long uh, interview uh, so in all formats, hardcover, if you wanted to read it on your ebook, they're in all major bookstores and all online retailers and, and uh, Audible and everything else. So, uh, Rob, thanks for making time for me. And it's great to have Canadian Canadian readers should please check out both these books. I think you'll find them really fascinating. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.